So I think I want to start with this poem. It's out of a very recent New Yorker magazine. It's called Telescope. There is a moment after you move your eye away when you forget where you are because you've been living, it seems, somewhere else in the silence of the night sky. You've stopped being here in the world. You're in a different place, a place where human life has no meaning. You're not a creature in a body. You exist as the stars exist, participating in their stillness, their immensity. Then you're in the world again, at night on a cold hill, taking the telescope apart. You realize afterward not that the image is false, but the relation is false. You see again how far away each thing is from every other thing. So I want to talk tonight, if I, if I had made a, um, a name for this talk, it would be Seeing in a New Way. Talk about uh, uh, mindfulness. And we often use the word uh, mindfulness interchangeably with the word vipassana. And I think there's a subtle difference between them, that uh, the practice of mindfulness, of balanced moment-to-moment focused attention, leads to the experience of vipassana, of seeing clearly, of seeing deeply and truly not just what's happening, but what's true about what's happening, the great truths of life. I want to talk about mindfulness tonight, particularly in its role uh, in cultivating that clear-seeing capacity, that specifically the capacity that leads from the shift from knowing about how things are to really deeply knowing. Remember the other night Guy spoke about the three characteristics of experience. and There's a way in which when we hear them, uh, that things are impermanent, suffering comes from clinging, Everything is interrelated. Everything is a part of everything else. There's a way in which we understand that. And I think that there's a way in which that understanding becomes unshakable. I'm counting on it. I don't have that yet, but I'm counting on increasing experience with direct awareness of those characteristics coming eventually to that wisdom which is unshakable. Because after all, the wisdom that uh, we find so um, helpful in making our lives uh, more filled with happiness for ourselves and other people, in some ways, is garden variety wisdom. Two things I did yesterday. Well, actually, I watched two operas yesterday on DVDs. That's one of the things that my husband and I like to do a lot. So uh, the first one is I watched an opera that uh, I watched a performance that's 25 years old of uh, Luciano Pavarotti when he was young and uh, singing the role of Nemorimo in The Elixir of Love. So if you know The Elixir of Love, it's a, um, it ends wonderfully well, but so you can relax for the whole opera. <laughs> but um, he's in love with a woman who doesn't want to have anything to do with him who by her own uh, admission is fickle. She says, I get interested in everyone, it would be a bad thing, but he's desperately in love with her. 
and agonized and he sings out about how agonized he is and he pleads i'm agonized about my love for you and she sings back you are struggling because you can't give up this idea of being in love with me <laughs> so i think to myself well she could be the buddha that's exactly you know the same wisdom that's why you're struggling this is plain wisdom who doesn't know that then we then we listen to um we watched uh, Cinderella with uh, Cecilia Bartoli. Uh, so this is also a, a happy opera because it's Rossini, so you know from the beginning that it's going to be okay in the end. And uh, Cinderella could also be the Buddha in this particular rendition. It's a different Cinderella. It has no glass slippers. It has uh, unpleasant stepsisters and an unpleasant mean father. Everyone is mean to Cinderella. But her good heart shines out no matter what. She has no ill will on, everyone, on anyone. And ultimately, actually from the beginning, the prince in disguise who meets her says there's something interesting about this person. Some aura is coming out from her different from other people. And I'm thinking in here she has already established herself as incredibly kind and patient. I'm thinking this is a very good Dharma story that it comes out from her that something special about her. You know, thinking about the stories of the, the ascetics that met the Buddha and said, he seems different from before. Something special is coming out from him. Anyway, the whole story unfolds and twists and turns, and you think, uh-oh, he's going to marry the wrong stepsister. But he doesn't, because in the end, he figures out that this is really what he wants to do. He chooses her as the bride and the stepsisters and the father are worried that she'll be vengeful, maybe banish them something. And she sings, more or less, I am so filled with gratitude and happiness and the wish to be a noble, wise queen. So here is my revenge. I forgive you. <laughs> so she could also be the Buddha letting go of her grudge. If this is it's, it's, <laughs> no, no, that's all we can relax. <laughs> and everyone relinquishes, the sisters relinquish their wishes to be the queen, the father becomes a new and loving person, everyone is overjoyed, they're kissing each other all around. I'm thinking to myself, hatred is never ended by hatred, by love alone is hatred ended which is one of my most favorite lines from the Dhammapada. And I think to myself, everyone knows it. Everyone really knows it. Cinderella knows it. We all know it. Rossini knew it. Everybody knows it, but everybody doesn't, including me, doesn't remember it all the time. So really what we're talking about, how am I going to remember this all the time? It's not esoteric knowledge. I've... Uh, recently joined a curves gym you may know about curves it's a half hour gym experience you run in and you do a bunch of machines and you go out a half hour later feeling uplifted actually because it's uplifting music and uh, <laughs> 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 next week <laughs> They publish a magazine. Curves is a very mainstream gym. It is all over the United States in small towns. 
They publish a monthly magazine. I brought home the Curves monthly magazine for January. It's got a big article on forgiveness. It says forgiveness is good for you. It says it's good for your health, it's good for your body, it's good for your mind. It talks about cortisol levels in the mind and what happens if, you're, if, you, if you hang on to anger and how it deteriorates your body and confuses your mind. I thought to myself, it's in Curves magazine, it's all over the place. How come we forget it? How come we forget it? Wisdom is wisdom. Buddhist wisdom is the same as any other kind of wisdom. But what we are, what I am hoping to accomplish through my practice is to go from small k knowing to what one of my teachers used to call capital K knowing. I want to know it so that I don't forget it. I want it etched into the fiber of marrow of my bones. I don't want to make so many mistakes. There's a casual way in which we know it. it may, things arise and pass away. The Super Bowl, by the way, is this afternoon, and I was thinking about, probably some people here are thinking, oh, I'm not watching the Super Bowl. Probably some people are thinking, what a relief, I don't have to do the whole Super Bowl. Everything makes a different impact on everybody's mind. But by the time this talk is over, so will the Super Bowl be over, and it'll be in the same history as everything else that's happened in the past. Everything comes and goes, and we all know about impermanence. What Guy said about seeing those three characteristics, impermanence, the truth of suffering, the truth of interconnectedness, is that the Buddha said that these three truths of how things are, are really the key. Seeing them is the key to a liberated mind. A person really understands deeply those truths. The mind ceases to cling to what essentially is unclingable because it's empty and substantial. So the craving in the mind to have things different from what they are falls away. Not because you push it away, not because you will it away, but actually through wisdom. Another way to talk about the liberated mind would be the mind free from the habit of wanting other. Free from the habit of struggling with unpleasantness. Increasing the tension in the mind, something's unpleasant. Either the situation is unpleasant because there's something we want and we can't get it, or there's something unpleasant because there's something that we don't want and we have it. There's an increase in the tension in the mind if we struggle with it and it creates suffering. That very increase of tension in the mind is what the Buddha meant by suffering. It's not pain. It's really an important difference. In English, we use the words pain and suffering quite interchangeably. We say so-and-so had a lot of pain and suffering, and we use suffering to mean like extended pain or a lot of pain. There's really a difference in what the Buddha taught. Was not What he taught was not about ending pain. There is pain in this life. Also not about not having joy or wonderful things in this life. It's about the tension in the mind when what's present is not pleasant to us because we don't have enough of it or we don't want it. And it's what we and it's what we got. It's the insatiable need in the mind to have things other. That habit in the mind of struggling with unpleasantness and creating suffering is gradually replaced through wisdom, 
through understanding personally and deeply how suffering works, by the ability to acknowledge unpleasant, not not to feel it, to acknowledge unpleasantness, and to address it with attention, with kindness, and to change it if change is possible. It's not about being passive in life. There are lots of unpleasant situations that we can change. I mean, think about something simple and ordinary. If I'm walking outside and and I'm walking in the sun and I become, and it's hot and I'm realizing I'm hot, I'm hot, I'm really hot, this is unpleasant, I can change my walking place and move over into the shade. It's a relatively easy shift. It's not about opening to what's ever there and not changing anything. There are lots of things that we can change. We make shifts all day long trying to keep ourselves comfortable. In fact, if we pay very close attention, what one becomes aware of is that most of the shifts that we make going from A to B or doing this instead of that are because we got uncomfortable in the last thing we were doing, so now we're doing something else to correct it. And there are a lot of wise and skillful things that we do. Get to, we get to be hungry, it's a little uncomfortable, it gets to be lunchtime, we eat. That's a wise and skillful thing to do. There are lots of things to do that we do all the time that speak to unpleasantness and change it. The, the insatiable need in the mind to have other that amounts to suffering is uh, what the Buddha was, and what we all recognize as struggling with what we can't change. I remember telling you when I talked the other night about my young friend uh, who has a big sign that her father's made for her that says about her new medical condition, physical condition, which she is disappointed to have. This isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. That ability of the mind to actually say that and know it and feel really deeply, this isn't what I wanted. It's unpleasant. I don't like it. It's what I got. And not to fight with it, not to make that tension in the mind. It's incredibly hard not to do that. One of my favorite Dharma books is a book called Tranquility and Insight by uh, Amadeo Solelares. He says things in uh, ways that I like very much. One of the things he said is uh, the problem. He's summarizing the whole problem of being a human being. He said, the problem is wanting other. And I think to myself, when I read it, maybe this is just semantic editing, but I think wanting is not the best word. I have plenty of things that I want. Craving is a better word. Craving. Uh, the, the Pali word is tanha. It's the unappeasable want that hurts the mind. It's the, not so much I have to have this, but I, my mind cannot relax unless that being content being at ease in the situation requires something. I must have something. Something needs to be different for me to be satisfied. There's a gospel song that maybe some of you know. Uh, the name of it actually is A Satisfied Mind. The lyric, uh, the verse that I like is uh, <laughs> not going to sing. Not going to sing. Not going to sing. 
<laughs> just for that, I'm not going to say. <laughs> you search the whole world over, there's one thing you'll find, there's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. And the, the song goes on to say, that's what I want to do, I want to die with a satisfied mind. I think we all do. I, I also actually want to live with one until I get <laughs> So really, those are all rephrasings of the second and third noble truth. That the first noble truth, of course, is of the unsatisfactory nature. Things are difficult. They're always changing. And the second and third. Second is that suffering arises every time the mind needs things otherwise. And the third noble truth is that peace is possible. Fourth noble truth is the formula, the prescription for training the mind to see clearly, training the mind to arrive at that place in wisdom so that craving falls away. You pass, if you walk, and I'm, I'm sure most of you do up and down, you pass the prayer wheel all the time, and uh, you pass the eight steps of the Eightfold Path, wise understanding, wise aspiration, wise action, wise livelihood, wise speech, wise, mindful, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. All of them are uh, entryways into the development of wisdom, the development of insight, leading to wisdom. The point is wisdom. It's really important. I can't. I feel like I'm maybe. I've already said it, but I want to say it again, because the point is wisdom. So that sometimes when people come into interviews, they worry about their meditation style. I, I don't know if I'm meditating right or meditating wrong, or I can't find my breath, or will this work? And I really want to say, meditation is a really wonderful tool for quieting the mind, focusing the attention, arriving at insight, but it's not about becoming a good meditator. It's about really coming to those places of understanding of wisdom. And so the work that we do together, all of us and all of you, is discovering what are the ways, what are the practice ways that you can work. Maybe for everybody it's going to be a little different to arrive at, at those insights which cultivate wisdom. So we'll remember again those, uh, just to remember again those insights that Guy spoke about last, last, uh, last week and uh, uh, be able to talk about how mindfulness really points to those insights. The first one about uh, things always changing. And really about what's, what would be so good about knowing. What, does, what changes if you know that things always change? Actually, it was the first thing that I really began to appreciate about my practice. I thought I was making some progress when I discovered that I had slightly less fear in periods when things were difficult in my life. Uh, I was not as frightened, not because the I thought the difficulty would necessarily resolve, 
I just knew it wouldn't go on forever. That was so consoling to me, just knowing that things would have an end, a feeling that things would have an end. On a certain way, we know things have an end. Look, here we are at the end of one week of this retreat. In a certain way, there may have been moments in this week that felt like eternities, but already one quarter of the retreat, gone. And maybe it feels just like a moment at this point. Where the whole week go? Or if we try to think where did it all go, it's like, poof, it's kind of empty. What happened to it? I think that about the whole life. Where did it go? All of a sudden. It's amazing. I could tell stories about it, but it's all not here. The other part of uh, the awareness of uh, impermanence is that uh, not only did I find that I had uh, more comfort through difficult times knowing that they wouldn't last, is I had more appreciation of wonderful times knowing that they wouldn't last. I really didn't want to miss any part of something. I'd uh, begin to realize that this moment I guess Howie was talking about the other night, or some oh, guy was talking about Howie talking about not wanting to be away from Molly at all because he might miss some of her growing up. You know? The awareness that every moment is so precious. So not only the wonderful times need I pay attention to and celebrate them, or the difficult times could I relax them because they won't last, but the in-between times that, that I really can really be awakened because they're the only times I'm going to have them. And that awareness of how fast everything passes, haven't got a moment to lose. I realized sometime in the last uh, 20 or 30 years since I've begun to think about these things that uh, if there were one expression in the world that's uh, an idiomatic expression uh, that really just you know makes my hair stand on end, People will say, I, uh, I missed my flight, so I had three hours to kill in the Denver airport. And I think, oh, I haven't got a moment to lose. Nothing to kill. It's just not a moment to lose. This is such a short life. And one more thing to say about that awareness of impermanence. That we could see in any moment can see it in each breath coming and going, in each step coming and going, that mindful attention all during the day knows not only that the breath is coming in and going out, this is an in-breath, now it's gone. This is an out-breath, now it's gone. This is a step, now this is another step, and this is another step. (gasps) That's all gone. That breath is all gone. You can see each of these characteristics in any moment of our experience. Here is my most favorite description of what happens when, uh, when mindfulness really penetrates deeply the truth of impermanence. It comes from that same book, Tranquility and Insight. And uh, there was a time, actually, when um, I was so impressed by the story of uh, Blaise Pascal, who, having had some liberating vision, wrote it on a piece of paper and pinned it to the pocket, the lining of his coat, according to legend, never didn't wear that coat and never took out that pinned-on note for the rest of his life. So I thought, well, this is the paragraph that I will pin on the inside of my coat. 
I actually typed it out. I brought it to Kinko's. I got it uh, permoplasted or whatever that is where they put the plastic over it. And I use it as a bookmark. It says, it is through mindful observation of what is actually there that the delusion that makes us perceive what is impermanent and transient as permanent and lasting is gradually dispelled. Liberation consists in experiencing and understanding fully and clearly that everything is impermanent and seeing that there is quite literally nothing to worry about. I love that. Somebody like me who has a big history of worrying about everything That's a great thing to know. The second of those characteristics, the characteristic of impermanence, the characteristic of dukkha, of suffering, of the the cause and the end of suffering, that holding on to anything pleasant, because you want it youth or vigor or a satisfying situation, is going to be the source of suffering because it will change. Holding on to unpleasant thoughts, unpleasant memories, grudges, it's also the source of suffering. This is a new moment, this moment. The mind that is relaxed, is liberated, is able to choose where it rests its attention. His very important guy has said several times in instructions, and several people have repeated it, in order to be a certain way, you have to Practice being that way. Put yourself in that place. Choose peace. Here comes this thought that's uh, an old thought that leads to a feeling, that leads to a flood of memories, that leads to tension in the body. There isn't a requirement that you sit through it. Sometimes people understand uh, this practice as meaning being with everything that comes up. Being with it doesn't mean staying with it. It means being with it long enough to notice it, to name it, to attend to it, to feel it pleasant, unpleasant, recognize it for what it is, and then choose skillfully. You can choose to say, I see what this is, I remember it, I feel it. Now I take a breath in and a breath out. Now I take another breath in and a breath out. That's also staying with current experience. Reviewing the idea that's come up in your mind may be current experience. Taking a breath is current experience. Wishing oneself well, making metta resolves for oneself is also current experience. The mind that's free can choose. In this moment, this is what's happening. There's a in in um, in one of the texts that. Um, Actually, it's a text called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. It's an um, explication of uh, the Satipatthana Sutta. And there is uh, the Mindfulness Sutta. And uh, the uh, important, an important part of that text for me is a commentary called Clear Comprehension of Purpose. That in the moment that the mind sees clearly it is free to choose the next moment. It has that clear comprehension and an awareness of what leads to suffering and what doesn't, and the ability to choose where the attention will rest in the next moment. So the third of the uh, 
characteristics is the characteristic of interconnectedness. And the anatta, sometimes we call it emptiness, and it's confusing sometimes uh, for people not so familiar with the concept of emptiness. It works, I think, for me to talk about interconnectedness of all conditioned arisings, that there are, there is nothing at all conditioned that is outside of, separate from, a constantly changing, lawful, cause and effect relationship with everything else. Everything, including us, we arise because of conditions, thoughts arise because of conditions, everything arises because of conditions, and in relationship to everything else. I breathe, you breathe, we all breathe, but in relationship to the trees breathing in and out. If I pay attention when I, uh, when I'm sometimes when I'm sitting and really attentive to the breath and particularly enjoying the ease of the breath going in and out and in and out with no effort at all on my part or yours. When you're sitting, you don't have to pull in the next breath. You just sit there. It happens. That somehow in a really wonderfully mystical way, the my, your, my, everyone's diaphragm in concert with the biosphere moves back and forth together. And the biosphere pushes the breath in, my diaphragm accommodates it and then pushes it out. And the trees breathe and I breathe because we are giving each other artificial respiration. And as long as my lungs are viable, and as long as the green stuff on this planet is viable, we'll continue to keep each other alive. And so it seems to me only one half a thought away from uh, that awareness that I am aware of the need to recycle, the need to protect the earth, the need to think of the earth as being part of this life, that everything is contingent for its being on everything else. It's also quite possible for me in that moment to have the direct awareness that there's no one who breathes. This body is breathed. The, the intricate business of breath in and out of this body, all of your body, all breathing bodies continues on without an I who takes a breath. We sometimes use that form of speech. We say, oh, I took a deep breath or uh, because it, it's a, a little less cumbersome in English. Other, you know, actually other languages are, have other ways to say it, but in English, it would be cumbersome to say a deep breath just happened. You know, it makes more sense to say, I took a deep breath. But really, a deep breath happened, and then a not so deep breath happened. You might particularly pay attention to it in, in uh, the yoga sessions and notice how interesting it is that sounds fall on the ears and the arms lift up. And they go out to the side. Notice, as you're doing it, that there's no I who does that. Certain sounds fall on the ears, and a whole room full of people do this <laughs> together. Who knows what goes on in them, but a whole room full of people does this. And then they do that, and then they do that, and then some more sounds 
fall on the ears, and everybody does it. Just sounds fall on the ears, and bodies move around. But there's actually no one who's doing anything. There's actually, it's, it's a quite an amazing thing. If you expect to feel it and experience it in the yoga, you probably will. And it's remarkable. It's true. There's no one who does it. Just all happens. There's another way that I, uh, that is, uh, one more way that I like to think about interconnectedness, because it's very much a part of an understanding of karma, how every action that any of us does makes a difference in ways that we can't even imagine. There are uh, two uh, uh, Buddhist um, Pali terms, hiri and otapa, which uh, have to do with the awareness that every action creates ripples infinitely and forever, makes an impact on the whole of the created world. And the other is that every action can either create suffering or not create suffering. And that awareness conditions in me uh, such a sensitivity about being careful about what I do, because everything makes a difference. So you, you probably remember that last week I read you the letter from the editor in Essence magazine. She had a letter from Ricky in Iraq about, tell me the name of a spa in Washington, D.C. And she printed that in Essence magazine uh, as a way that she had come to, her lesson from Ricky in Iraq was, wow, I get upset at little things like, you know, my car didn't work or I, whatever, was broken in her car and smashed a headlight. But Ricky is in Iraq and he's thinking about his wife and wishing good things for her in Washington. And he says, well, if Ricky could think about somebody else with kindness, I certainly can't get all caught up in my own petty little worries. So she wrote the letter to the editor in Essence magazine. Meantime, here is uh, another letter, email to her from Ricky in Iraq. He said, uh, I uh, thank you. He said, I finally have time to write you and say thank you. My wife started receiving calls and emails from some of our friends around the country. They read Essence as much as we do and were moved by your words. After being told to go pick up an, an issue of Essence, my wife was finally able to see what the confusing emails and phone calls were about. <laughs> my wife was touched, and so were members of my family. I still have not yet read your letter, but I will get a copy of the issue soon. Thank you again for your words and your spirit. You made my time here a good bit better. I really do thank you. Peace and love. Ricky Antonio Livingston. So he wrote an email, she wrote an article, people all over the country called his wife, his wife felt uplifted by it. We all heard it, I read it, I read it to you, you all heard it. Ricky in Iraq said, I really felt my time here is a good bit better. Every single thing that we do has ramifications that you don't know where they're gonna end. So, now we get to the part about how does mindfulness lead to seeing in a more and more clear way those characteristics. If those characteristics are what we are meant to see, how does mindfulness point us in the direction of seeing?
We've been practicing here uh, really a combination of attention and concentration. And we've talked a lot, and it's very important these last several days, about establishing a base of really secure concentration. Mindfulness stays, mindfulness is best established in a base of concentration. It means balanced awareness. It means the ability to see clearly, moment to moment, what's happening. And beyond that, what's really happening. So there's the top story. A breath is in and a breath is out. A leg is up and a leg is down. And there's the inside story. Everything changes. There's the inside story that holding on, wherever you do it, is the cause of suffering. Imagine if I took a breath in. Oh, that's wonderful, lovely. Now I'll just hold it. Well, I'd be uncomfortable after a while. It It needs to pass in the normal way. If I pick my leg up, because I'm taking a step, it has to come down. But you need change is what's always happening. This having been initiated, foot having been picked up, means foot has to come down. This leads to that, leads to that, leads to that. Otherwise, there's discomfort. To see deeply the interrelationship of things, you never have to see what's happening, but what's true. Looking through it, what's the deeper picture? Uh, one of the uh, Dharma books translated into French translates uh, vipassana, clear seeing, as vision profonde. And I love that. I think it's the best thing, you know, that you get the sense of not just really seeing, but really seeing. So my, uh, one of my most favorite Dharma writers is Nyanapanaka. Yanapanaka uh, was born in Germany uh, more than a hundred years ago, moved to, he was a German Jew, finished university, moved to Sri Lanka, became a nun, monk, I'm sorry, became a monk, and he died in his 90s, in the last decade. He was the editor of the Buddhist Publication Society in Kandy. He uh, published lots of essays and books on Dharma. This is a book called The Vision of Dhamma. And uh, this is out of a, a chapter called The Power of Mindfulness. And he talks about there being four particular ways in which mindfulness works. These are the four ways. Because mindfulness has the ability to tidy. Mindfulness is tidying. The function of mindfulness is tidying and naming in the mind. It's also non-violent and non-coercive. It also cultivates the capacity to slow down and stop. And it also leads to a directness of vision. So I want to talk just a little bit about each of those four. Uh, This is another one of those uh, paragraphs that I love so much that I carried around with me because I love thinking about it. Uh, Nyanapanaka is talking about... um, uh, anyone whose uh, mind is not harmonized and controlled through methodical meditative training. That's how that paragraph starts. In other words, a person who hasn't really practiced. Anyone whose mind is not harmonized and controlled through methodical meditative training goes on to say, should that person choose to look at her every own everyday thoughts and feelings, he or she 
would be faced with a tangled mass of perceptions, thoughts, feelings, casual body, bodily movements showing a disorderliness and a confusion which she or he would certainly not tolerate in his living room. I just like that so much. It's just so, it just, uh, I keep thinking, and probably, I hope this is not an ethically incorrect thing to say. It sounds to me very much like uh, someone who grew up with a very tidy European mother who took a lot of effort in tidying the house, would not tolerate a messy living room. But the truth is, if I think about it, if, if a living room were messy, you would trip over things. You know, if the mind is messy with a, what does he call it? A tangled mass of perceptions, thoughts, feelings, and casual bodily movements, all registering in the mind at one time. Well, you couldn't possibly see freely. It's like a thicket of stuff. He then goes on to say, if we continue to examine more closely our average perceptions, thoughts, or judgments, we shall have to admit that many of them are unreliable. They are just the product of habit led by prejudices of intellect and emotion, by our pet prejudices or aversions, by faulty or superficial observations, by laziness or selfishness. This afternoon while I was typing this out, out of the, wherever things are stored in the memory bank, it's amazing to me, I remembered, um, when, just when I was reading that line about they are the product of habit led by prejudices of intellect and emotions, pet prejudices and aversions. I remembered an experience I had. He said, you can't see clearly because the mind is cluttered with those prejudices. So I was looking for a story about that that I haven't told before. So uh, I remembered an occasion, this really dates the story because it happened in the Oakland airport in the days before the now security regulations. Nowadays, there nobody goes past security who isn't flying. In those days, you could go to a boarding lounge to wait at the gate for when people were getting off a plane, or you could accompany people to the gate when they were leaving. So, uh, so I was in the Oakland airport, actually, and I arrived at a boarding gate uh, so early that only two people were there before me and the nearby gates on either side were empty. And there, there was just this one couple and they were either unaware or unconcerned about the fact that I were there, was there because they were kissing. They were really kissing in an earnest way. <laughs> so I thought to myself, well, one of them is leaving on this flight and they came to get a head start on saying goodbye. And I sat down and I looked the other way and I tried to read my magazine and I <laughs> thought about walking back and buying another magazine. And that couple just stood there where they were, where they'd been when I arrived, next to a chair with hand luggage on it, hugging and talking softly to each other and kissing all the while. And other people started arriving. I, I felt a little bit relieved. I felt less like an intruder. And I worried about how long they were going to be apart from each other, and I felt sad that they were going to be separated. And more people arrived, and then still, after that, without appearing to notice that anyone else, other, and notice anyone other than each other, one of them picked up the suitcase and they left together in the direction of the airport exit. They weren't saying goodbye, they were saying hello. <laughs> um, my mind had put the puzzle pieces together 
in a way that told a story that made me comfortable. Ardent displays of affection are only permissible if the circumstances of those of long parting was the message that I learned in my family. And I heard my mind make a derisive judgment. If that were me, I would meet my beloved with a hug, with an exclamation, an exclamation of pleasure, but not this. <laughs> and then immediately I had the thought, too bad for me. <laughs> So I think to myself, the too bad awareness was too bad my mind is cluttered with judgments. I could have enjoyed those people's happiness. I could have not felt uncomfortable sitting in the boarding lounge. I could have avoided feeling sad about what I assumed was their imminent separation. I want my heart to be responsive. I really want it to be awake. I want it to care, to console, to be able to celebrate, because that's what hearts do naturally. And I'd especially like my heart, to, my mind to be clear so that my heart could respond free of limiting views to what's actually happening. I go there with my prejudice, and then I don't see clearly at all what's happening. I make up a story that's not happening at all because of a pre-established view in my own mind. I think it happens all the time. We make a, I make up stories about what's going on based on what's in me, not what based on what's going on out there based on what I expect to see. Sometimes I wonder how much of what I'm actually seeing is actually happening, or whether everything isn't happening in here, and I'm not making up the world. Nyanapanika says by looking and naming, you tidy up the mind. You really move the furniture in a way that you can get through it. You get through some of that tangled thicket. If you name what you see, here we have this pr the practice here, of mental noting, naming. This is a long breath, this is a short breath. It's not that it makes a difference if it's two long breaths and one short or what, it doesn't matter what you name. It's that naming means I actually saw you, and I know what you are. One of the things that Nyanapanika said is good about naming is that you could see all of your ignoble thoughts. And he said, once you start to see them, you get so embarrassed about them, it conditions them falling away, and then you don't have them anymore because you feel so badly about them. And when I read that again this afternoon, I thought, well, I don't know about that. Um, I am prepared to say that in my own experience, I see more clearly my ignoble thoughts, and I see more clearly how painful they are to me. I don't give myself such a bad time about it. I think ignoble thoughts happen judgments about this or that. I think they just happen. I don't plan to make them. They just happen. But what I am increasingly aware of is how unpleasant they are to me. And I'm also increasingly aware that when my mind is relaxed, it happens less. And I'm not so worried about getting rid of the ignoble thoughts. I think I'm going to concentrate more on trying to see clearly and keep my mind relaxed because actually the, the presence of mindfulness is very comforting. You can see what's going on. Moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness really establishes concentration, which has within it all the antidotes to all the hindrances. The mind becomes more relaxed, it becomes more clear, it becomes more comfortable, and it makes less ignoble thoughts all by itself. 
The second of the four functions of mindfulness is that it's non-coercive. That mindfulness doesn't force things to be other than what they are. Uh, Nana Panika makes a list of uh, things that annoy in meditation. He says, first of all, outside disturbances annoy. He talks about the same kinds of things that you're aware of here. Person next to me breathes too loud. People come in and out late. They bang the door. They, you know, whatever it is, the the, the mind that isn't relaxed um, gets annoyed at external sounds. Someone told the story about could the planes fly in another flight path the other day. Uh, the, I think actually the mind gets more annoyed at its own internal disturbing thoughts, wish that they would go away. What Nyanapanika talks about in this particular part of the essay is that mindfulness just says, this is what's happening. It doesn't insist at all that it goes away. It just notices it. I had, um, I remembered someone saying, reading the Rumi poem the other day, everything, every day another new thing comes to visit. And I thought about um, using that image to talk about the arising of disturbing things is like the arrival of visitors that you didn't feel like exactly having come. And uh, the, I, I like to have the image of having um, a house with an open door so I don't have to be with my back against the door holding it closed. Things will come in and things will go out. And I will be most comfortable if I don't have to bar the door. I don't have to entertain things that arrive any longer than they need to be there. Don't have to keep things. But they're not fighting with the visitors coming and going. It's an open door policy. Everything comes. And if I don't pay too much attention to it, if I notice it and acknowledge it and I'm kind about it, it'll go away. So non-coerciveness. And I thought about that, that uh, um, so important to take that particular experience of non-coercive meditation. Whatever here is here, it's here, I notice it, now it's gone, now it's still here, okay, I hope it's gone soon. Meantime, I'll breathe, maybe while I'm breathing and paying attention to the breath, it'll go. Don't have to be unpleasant to it, but I don't have to, I don't have to invite it to stay, I don't have to necessarily give it more attention than acknowledging it and knowing it. That it's a way of practicing that kind of non-coercive, uh, non-combative spon- uh, uh, stance with life in general, off the cushion and out of the meditation hall. A non-coercive mind with life is what I'd like to have. I want to be in contention with it. Once again, practicing where you'd like to be in order to be there. Practicing peace in order to be peaceful. Nyanapanaka says that doing that is trusting in the power of mindfulness so that we are able to say, as the Buddha said, may Mara not dislodge me from this place. I love that. May Mara not dislodge me from this place, as the Buddha was sitting with equanimity on the evening of his enlightenment. And Mara came with all kinds of disturbances, all kinds of attempts to frighten him or arouse him. May Mara not dislodge me from this place. I acknowledge you, Mara, but I'm just here.
the third of the four is the the capacity to stop and slow down. Actually, it's true that you could pay attention at any pace, but it's easier to see what's true. Really, it is if practice happens slowly and deliberately. And I know that we've had lots of instructions here and conversations and interviews about you don't have to walk very slowly if that makes you tense. There is something to be said, though, as days go by for really simplifying your experience here and trying, when you can, to do whatever you do slowly enough to be able to see not only what you're doing but the motivation behind it, really to see how the mind works, how it works that things happen. Not only in the walking, for instance, in the eating. I love to think about eating meditation, one of my favorite things. You might try this. If you're sitting and the food is in front of you and you're hungry and you smell it, you smell it. and. You smell it, you look at it, it's beautiful, you sit down with it. You'll notice your heart's pounding a little bit. It's very exciting to pick up all that food and sit down with it. You sit down and your heart's excited and it smells good and it looks good. And Maybe you're motivated to say a prayer of thanksgiving or whatever. A bit that, so you're aware of gratitude. Look at this. It's very exciting. And the impulse arises to start eating it. And see what happens if you don't start. You know, if you just sit there for a minute. Then you hear your mind say to you, what's the matter with you? Pick up the fork. <laughs> Start. You know, that, you know? And then, so then you pick up the So you notice that there is an intention to pick up the fork. The fork doesn't pick up by itself. That in between the arising of desire is the intention to do something. You begin to see how we are motivated throughout the day. That every single thing we do is motivated by the intention to make ourselves comfortable in some way. It's really true. So you can see it while sitting there. If you pick up the fork and you bring it up to your mouth and you put it in, you notice you salivate, okay, exciting. Chew, 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 that was great. <laughs> Swallow, put down the fork. Say, so? Pick up the fork again. What are you doing? If you pick up the fork, sometimes, sometimes pick up the fork, bring it halfway up to the mouth and put it back down. You see, your mind says, what are you doing? <laughs> It's just so completely instructive to notice how we are pushed around by desire. And all the time there's no one to get pushed. It's empty, but desire keeps arising and the meeting of desire keeps happening. And it's wholesome to sit down and eat. But it's really instructive to use that time to slow down and watch intentions and see that there is no one who's eating, but eating happens, motivated by desire can learn, really, basic dharma sitting at the lunch table. When we talk about directness of vision, that's the fourth, of Nyanapanaka's functions of mindfulness. He said you really get to see, if you name, if you tidy up, if you see what's there, if you name it, if you slow down, if you restrain the impulse to do anything with it, just be a good host to whatever arrives. Don't pay it too much. Don't force it to stay. Don't push it away. It'll come and go. In the coming and going, you get to see that everything comes and goes. Just as a breath comes and goes, a thought comes and goes, an emotion comes and goes, you get to see more and more deeply that everything is impermanent. 
can just relax into this moment. There's nothing to worry about. Directness of vision. Um, I want to read you that one from the Anapanaka because it's such a lovely paragraph. Talking about when we condition mindfulness enough. He quotes some ancient poem. He says, um, If the sense of urgency that comes from clear seeing more and more is kept alive, it will bestow the earnestness and persistence required for the work of liberation. Thus said the teachers of old, this very world here is our field of action. It harbors the unfoldment of the holy path and many things to break complacency. Be stirred by things that may well move the heart and being stirred, strive wisely and fight on. He says, our closest surroundings are full of stirring things If we generally do not perceive them as such, that's because our habit has made our vision dull and our heart insensitive. The same thing happens to us even with the Buddha's teaching. When we first encounter the teaching, we receive a powerful intellectual and emotional stimulation. But gradually, the impetus tends to lose its original freshness and impelling force. The remedy is to constantly renew it by turning to the fullness of life around us which illustrates the Four Noble Truths in ever new variations. A direct vision will impart new lifeblood even to the most common experiences of every day so that their true nature appears through a dim haze of habit and speaks to us with a fresh voice. It may well be just a long accustomed sight of the homeless person on the street corner or a weeping child or the illness of a friend which startles us afresh, makes us think, and stirs our sense of urgency in treading resolutely on the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. I like this line in the middle. If we generally do not perceive things around us as stirring, it's because habit has made our vision dull and our heart insensitive. I... uh, I was thinking this morning, actually, uh, when Spring asked her question this morning about um, being aware of actually having concentration stay strong enough to carry through the nighttime and have the sense of sleeping and the sense of clarity at the same time. And I'm really thinking that, I was thinking of the line at the time, of, um, from the Song of Songs that says, um, I am asleep, but my heart is awake. I'm thinking that's actually what we are trying to do here, that the imperatives of our normal mind, full as it is easily with habits of old, that keep a feeling of I here, who needs to do this, or sees it this way or that way or that I through mindfulness and through concentration both goes to sleep 
goes to sleep because we see it's not there. goes to sleep because concentration, which builds through mindfulness, provides the antidotes to, to the hindrances that stir it up into being. That eye falls asleep. And so what's left is the responsive heart, aware of what's happening. Let me just sit for a minute. Everything which will startle us afresh and make us think and stir our sense of urgency in treading resolutely the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock on February 6, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.